0: Hey, good morning, church. If you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter two. That's where we're gonna be in just a moment. If you're new here, we're especially grateful to have you here and we've prayed for your visit and we'd love for you to let us know that you're here by filling out the card that's in the seat back in front of you. Um, if you are new here, this is a really special day for us as a church we're both celebrating graduates we're celebrating Hunter the guy who just prayed over our graduates today and after church if you don't have lunch plans now you do we're having food after church today and we'd love for you to be our guest um, and just join us on the lawn we're gonna have plenty of burgers and even if we don't have enough God has a way of making you know fishes and loaves come to be enough um, so we're glad that you're here. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors, and in just a moment, we'll be in First Thessalonians chapter 2. Bellwether Church is a rescued people who love and serve God in the world. That's how we like to think about ourselves. That defines not only who we are, but how we behave in the world, that we want to be a people that is radically defined by, not by what we can accomplish in the world, graduates, but by what? Christ has accomplished on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves. And so we're seeking to do that throughout the week. And this moment is really important for us as a people because we get to gather together what we've been hoping to be all throughout the week and then get in proximity with one another and say, oh my goodness, you too, me too. When we think about the things of God, when we celebrate what he's done for us, um, this moment in the course of our week is really important. And so a few words for you graduates. Um, In just a moment, we're going to talk about God's concern for his church. I have a few things that I want to tell you before you kind of launch into whatever the season is that's next. Um, First, seek Jesus Christ. Find a good church home, wherever you're gonna land. Find a place where there's a group of people who are after the same goal of knowing and experiencing and walking with Jesus Christ. Second thing is find a group of friends that are about that same goal, okay? Find some people that you'll be surrounded with that can push you towards Jesus, that will exhort you to follow him. And then the last thing is call your mama, okay? I mean, no, I'm serious. Call your parents because they are worried about you today, When they brought you into this world, they were completely um, overwhelmed with the fact that that for this day, to the moment that you're in glory, they're going to be concerned about you. They're worried right now. And listen, there is nobody else that's more acquainted with your vulnerabilities. They know you better than you know yourself. They they witnessed you before you could even look in a mirror. They know what you're like, okay? They know what you're going to be tempted by better than what you know yourself. So listen to them. Their concern for you, is, it's coming from a place of love, almost always. Now, there's some bad ones out there, but I don't think any of them are in this room. So, call your mama. The, the, uh, the reason I bring that up is that in this passage, there's going to be a reality where Paul is longing to hear from the people that he's invested time and attention and the gospel into. He longs to be with them face to face. He wants to know the results of the gospel in their life. He's desperate to hear from them. He's like a mom who's waiting to hear from their co- their college kid, wondering how in the world are they doing. But it's even more than that. Because ultimately, he's concerned with how the gospel is taking shape in their life. And so... Just a little bit of context before we dive into the passage. First of all, Paul has come through this town because he had to leave the previous town due to persecution. He gets thrown into jail, miraculously exits jail. He goes to Thessalonica. He tells these people about Jesus, and they believe. Now, there's some debate on how long he stayed there. It was for three Sabbaths, just over three Sabbaths. That could have been, you know, around three months or about three weeks. Either way, it was a very short period of time. And ultimately, there are people who are jealous of Paul, he's getting too much attention, the Jewish authorities. So they, they find some men of the rabble, that's what they call them. They pay them to stir up an angry mob, and they run Paul and his associates, his missionaries, out of town. It says in this passage they were stripped away, and, and, and the word literally means orphaned from God's people in Thessalonica. If you can imagine a child being stripped away from its mother, that's how he describes how he feels about leaving this group of people behind. So he's left them behind. And the people who are jealous and stirring up angry mobs, they just continue to do the thing that they were best at. They were probably slandering Paul and talking about him, saying, hey, you know what? He's no good. That's just some regular old snake oil salesman. He just came through looking for your money. And so in all of First Thessalonians, he's both sent Timothy to them to find out. He's gotten a good report, and he's writing back a letter saying, look, I love you. I love you, people. I've longed to be with you since the day that I left you. And so that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. You guys with me? Let's read God's word together. And we don't read it as if these are the words of men. We believe these are words that are authoritative. We bring ourselves under them and ask God to speak to us through them. Read them along with me. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn of your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through our faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints this is the word of the Lord Let's pray together. Father, we do believe that these are your words. And as much as they meant to that early church to receive them of this encouraging word that Paul the apostle would concern himself earnestly praying day and night over them, I pray that we would receive these words once again as an encouragement and an exhortation to be warned that his concerns were valid, that his labor was in vain. I pray that that would be so over us, that the concerns that we share for your faithfulness among us as a people, that they are valid. And that the labor that's been uh, ultimately driven and strengthened by your power would not be in vain among us, that you would rise up among us and that you would raise up a group of faithful people, homes, families, families, Individuals who love and serve you in the world. I pray that this would be so for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen. So, just as I said before, for us who are parents from birth until the time that you launch, from the time that you're in the grave, as long as we're living, we feel some degree of responsibility. And for Paul, he felt a great deal of responsibility over the life of this church, the investment that had been made was of great concern to him. And so we're gonna see a few ways. The big idea is this, that Jesus is building his church and he has a great enemy, (laughs) but he has a great many of people who are advocates for his work within the church and ultimately Jesus Christ who's pleading the case. He didn't just start the work, he intends to finish the work that he's begun in the church. And so we're gonna see in this passage some reasonable concerns that Paul had, a response that he made of caring them and, and, and loving them, and then ultimately how he was relieved and continued in prayer over this group of people. First, his concerns. His ultimate concern with them was that they would fall away, and he voiced this in two ways. First, with the tempter. Why had he been hindered from coming back? He desired to go back to them, but the reason that he was prevented was because of Satan. First, he names him at the beginning of this passage, and then he says, I'm concerned. I was concerned that the tempter would tempt you to fall away and you would fall away. So first, his concern was that there was an enemy. Now, I don't know if you woke up this morning or have walked through the previous week realizing that you have an enemy, and I'm not just talking about the person who disagrees with you on social media. I'm saying you have an ultimate spiritual enemy. And as much as Christ has a plan for life and to establish you and to give you life abundantly, Satan, our ultimate eternal enemy, has a plan to kill and destroy you, to deceive you and lead you away. And there's many ways that he's at play. All throughout the New Testament, Paul would just he would evoke into this place where he'd say, listen, you need to concern yourself. You have an enemy. In Ephesians six twelve, it says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, C.S. Lewis said there was two ways to live about this. You can be completely consumed with it or non-existent, right? You just ignore it. But the faithful way is to be aware to know that there is a concern that Paul had for this people and that God has for his church, that we would be tempted by a deceiver. And there's many ways that he would come into the church and seek to destroy God's work. Satan is always working to slow down God's work, to deceive God's people, and to stop what God is accomplishing in the world. He's always seeking to do that. He never takes a break. He's never on on vacation Inasmuch as much as God is seeking to accomplish his purposes in the world, Satan is seeking to, for, uh, to stop them. And how does he do it? He can do it both personally and corporately. First, personally, I just wanted to point out some ways that Paul's concern would have been reasonable. Once he tempts you to sin and you fall to it, immediately he'll shame you and condemn you for what you just did. And it'll stop you in your tracks. It'll stop whatever God is trying to accomplish his purposes in your life. He's going to try to tempt you away from it. And once he succeeds, then he's gonna take that failure and and point it in your face for the rest of your life. He's gonna shame you to prevent you from confession. He wants you to keep in secret the things that you've done. He wants to prevent you from confessing your sins so that he can hang them over your life. God wants you to be free from those things. No matter what you've done, He wants you to make a regular pattern of seeking out friendships, like I said, college students, seeking out people and adults that we can both bear our burdens with, who can share and and speak the gospel over our lives so that we could be free from whatever we fall into. He not only wants to shame us, but condemn us. And he'll do that personally so that he can stop whatever God's trying to accomplish through you. And he'll move from personal attacks to (laughs) to corporate ones. The gospel tells us a different story about ourselves as individual. Listen, Satan wants you to think it's not as bad as it actually is so that he thinks you should feel bad about how you haven't accomplished it. Christ wants you to know exactly how bad you are, and you can look at the devil and say, it's much worse, Satan. It's much worse. Whatever you're trying to convince me that I've done wrong, you can look at the enemy and say, I promise you it's worse than you think. Because Christ wants you to think rightly about your sin so that you can bring it to him and he he can absorb it on himself. As you confess your sins, he's able to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Listen, everyone who's just feeling so insecure or so proud that you feel insecure, at least you're not as bad as someone else, that's also Satan's plan for you. He wants you to look around you and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as this person. He has a plan to tempt you away, to shame you for what you do, to condemn you, and then to make you proud that you're not as bad as someone else, or proud enough to feel insecure about it for the rest of your life, thinking that maybe it was your that it was ultimately on you to, to fix the problem of sin. And in all those ways, he is a liar. And the gospel speaks a better word over everyone who will trust in it. Christ invites us to confess our sins, to make ourselves right before him and say, I need you, Lord Jesus. I need you to stay stand in my place for every way that I've fallen short and everything I did that wasn't right and all the ways that I didn't accomplish what you asked me to do and all the ways I did the opposite of what you asked me to. In all of those places, Christ's sacrifice stands sufficient for everyone who believes. And that's the good news of the gospel and he stands against the accuser. He won't just attack you personally, he also attack you relationally. listen, one tactic the enemy usually does is he's gonna confuse you over who you think the enemy is. He, he he'll make you think that your actual enemy is sitting right in front of you, or sitting right across from you at the dinner table, or sitting right above you in authority, or sitting across from you in marriage. And in all those places you have an enemy. It might not be the person he's trying to convince you that it is, but you have an enemy and he's out to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God wants for you. Don't confuse who the enemy is in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, and in the church. Wait, oh, here in the church too, you know that? You have an enemy that's telling you things about how you should see the people around you. He'll make you a consumer rather than a participant in this place. He's gonna make you cross your arms and look at everyone and say, who do they think they are? What do they think they're doing? What kind of people are in this place? He'll point out all of our differences rather than, so, as something to be bothered by rather than something to be gloried in, that Christ would call all the likes of us into his kingdom and call us his own and make us his children. That's what kind of God we serve, that he would adopt the likes of us and put us in family together. He'll make you a critic instead of a pupil, and that's what he wants. Christ wants to succumb to his word as a pupil saying, listen, I'm not the judge here. I'm on the stand, and I'm pleading your mercy. Before the court, Satan wants to make you the critic instead of the pupil. C.S. Lewis in the screw Tape Letters, he writes this narrative of two demons writing back and forth, and he says this about church attendance. Look, if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing for Satan and his devils to do is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits, quote, suits him, until he becomes a taster, a connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not likings, it brings people of different classes in psychology together in the same unity the Lord desires. In second place, the search for a suitable church makes, him, makes the man a critic where the Lord wants him to be a pupil. Listen, no matter what we're experiencing in terms of temptation, how he's attacking you personally or corporately in relationship, stand firm, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's the promise of God's Word. And that's the reasonable concern that Paul would have for these people that he had invested in. He's concerned about their future because there's a tempter. And let me tell you another way that the tempter works. He takes however you're feeling afflicted, however your circumstances are not what you anticipated, and he'll start telling you to not trust God's goodness. Say, listen, I, I told you, you couldn't trust God. He doesn't want good for you. He wants bad things for you. But what, what I find really interesting is that in the short amount of time that Paul spent in this place, foundational to their understanding of the gospel, foundational to them being a church, was them knowing how to interpret affliction. Not just persecution, but affliction. Any kind of affliction, they needed to know how to understand In every place that Paul would go to, foundational to him telling him about Jesus, his suffering, his life, his resurrection was, hey, you need to know this, okay? You need to know that you're going to suffer. In fact, signing up to walk with Jesus, it might actually bring worse things into your life. It is not your best life now. In fact, our best life is later. And and sometimes it actually might get worse for you today. So his concern was that they would fall away with a tempter, not only with being tempted to sin, but also that they would misinterpret affliction. He was concerned that the persecution wouldn't push them towards Jesus, but would push them away. And how many people do you know that when they're they're doing great, and then they walk through some trial, and they're like, how could God? And they walk away. They're like the seed that fell fell on on the path, and trials came, and it just ate them up. He wants us to be warned about this. In fact, he wants us to anticipate it, to endure it, to overcome whatever we're gonna walk through. Paul, in in several places in the New Testament, he says, look, you should anticipate suffering. That's what walking would, in fact, the guy that we're following, I don't know if you remember this, he picked up a cross, he carried up a hill, and he suffered ultimately in our place. So that's who we're after, okay? That's who we're following. He said, you should anticipate this. In 1 Peter 4.12, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Like, you, you should not look at some circumstance in your life. This is strange. This is so strange. I thought walking with Jesus would make my life Good. See, God has a completely different definition of what is good for you. 1 John 3 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In other words, like the guys who killed Jesus, there's plenty of people who would still have him dead today. Plenty of people. Don't be surprised when people hate you. And so Paul lays a foundation for this church saying, hey, look, from the beginning, you need to understand what Christ did and you need to understand what you're signing up for. If you put your hands to the plow and you begin to follow Jesus, expect it to be hard. Expect it to be difficult because Christ himself is our reward. The gospel attaches us to eternal things and detaches us from eternal things. In fact, sometimes God would... Call us to endure things so that we might become more and more and more detached from this world and attached to him in the midst of it and to his kingdom that is coming, that is not yet realized. And so for all of you that are looking around you and, and you envy the arrogant, you, know, you guys know Psalm 73, oh my goodness, Psalm 73, it is the story of my life. You look around and you say, why do these people have it so good? And he goes through it, he wrestles, and his conclusion is this, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. His nearness is our good. He redefines what good circumstances are. He takes them and transforms them and says, here's what's good about your circumstances. I've promised to never leave you or forsake you. I've promised to accomplish all that I've invited you into. I've promised to be with you through whatever the trial is. And I've promised to be there to the finish line. God's presence is the power for enduring whatever it is we walk through and overcoming whatever it is that we walk through. And Paul didn't just know this and pray this for them, he responded to this concern that he has that they would fall away with care. Now, how did he respond? He sends another guy. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope and joy, a crown and boasting of coming before the Lord Jesus? Is it not you? Now, before I move on to his response, I want you to see a couple things. Two times he looks forward to the conclusion He looks forward to Christ coming again, this moment where all of us will stand before the judge of the universe, we will see him face to face. First, he looks forward to that moment when he looks at the church and he says, look, you guys are my crown and joy. This is the only glory that I have before the king of kings. Now, uh, this could be confusing, so I I wanna explain it, sidebar here for a second. When you stand before the throne of judgment... If your hope is in anything other than what Christ has accomplished for you, it's in the wrong place. Let me say that again. If your hope is in anything other than what Christ has accomplished for you, it is in the wrong place. Now, when you stand justified before God, it will be because of Christ's righteousness, just like we just sang about. My hope is built on nothing less than Christ and his righteousness. And one day when his trumpet shall sound, I'll stand before him in his righteousness dressed alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. So that's one side of the coin. The other side is this, okay? Now hear me because I want to say it clearly. We will only be made right by God's righteousness through Jesus. But there's also going to be an offering of all the ways that we invested God's gifts that he had given us all the treasure that he invested in us, all the ways that he accomplished things through us, we're going to be able to bring those before God's throne and say, look what you did. Look what you did through this small offering of my life. And so when Paul looks at the church, he says, this is my glory and joy before the throne. He's saying, look, look at this thing that I believe you accomplished through my life. Look at how I understand my purpose and my mission and what you're doing in the world by playing my part. And because that's true, Paul became, he came to a place where he said, look, I can bear it no longer. I have to be with you. I have to send word. I've got to be near you. I've got to hear what is happening with you. Because he believed that this was the utmost importance of what was accomplished in his life. The faithfulness of the church was what he was saying. This is my glory and joy. This is what I've lived my life for. So when he considers his life, his purpose, his ministry, the value that's measured in the faithfulness of this people that he's led to Christ, that's the degree that they've endured, believed, hoped in the gospel. And because that's true, Paul came to a place where he responded with his concern with actual care. Look, he loved them. I want you to see that how he responded to his concern was just undergirded by this great affection that he had for God's people. He saw them, and he said he was like as tender as a mother, like a father encouraging his children. He loved this group of people, earnestly praying for them day and night. He loved them. He had a great desire to see them face to face. He cared for them. He could bear it no longer. And so he sends Timothy because Satan had hindered him from going. And he sends Timothy with these two purposes, to establish and to exhort. First, to establish them in their faith. So I'm sure some of the ways that that Paul's investment, him being an advocate for the church, he could see where they were lacking, okay? You guys know that you need people who can see where your faith is lacking. You need people like that that can look into your lives and say, hey, I want to establish you where your faith is lacking. I want to build you up. And then, The second part of Timothy's ministry there was not only to establish, but to exhort. That means that he was encouraging them to action. He wanted them to take action with what they believed. And because he was so invested as an advocate, he sends Timothy, this valuable person, to go to them and support them. Look at verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. So Timothy brings word back of their faith. And they are so relieved. They are so relieved. He wants to establish them, exhort them, and then he gets this word back that no, they haven't fallen away. They're still walking with Jesus. They're still enduring great affliction. They're still standing fast. Look at verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day, we may see you face to face. So Paul is so relieved. He takes a deep breath of relief and, he, and he's saying, what thanksgiving can I give to God for the joy that you've brought me and hearing that you're standing fast. Ultimately, the reason for his praise before God on that day was hearing the word that this group of people had been faithful He was so relieved and thankful and joyous because he had heard that they were walking with Jesus. We need people like that who are so concerned, who are so invested in us that when they hear that we're still walking with Jesus, they're going, that's what I've been hoping. At night and day, I've been praying for you to walk with Jesus. So his relief was founded in the fact that they were standing fast with Jesus that they were increasing in love for one another. Listen, we're so glad that you're still loving each other. We're so grateful to God that you're standing with Jesus, that you still love one another. And then he moves from relief to praying. Because look, if there's anything that's true for anyone who's a believer in this world, okay, until we see Jesus face to face, everything that we're relieved in right now, in immediate, I mean, just right next to it, we're like, oh Lord, help it not. <laughs> Let's get, please, Lord, get us to the finish line. And as much as we can be relieved in one another and our standing with Christ, we're also hopeful and saying, may it be this. And so he concludes this passage with a prayer. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Again, He just wants to be together. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. A few things, okay? He's relieved that they're standing fast, and He's prayerful. He prays a few things. First, direct our way to You, He's longing for a great reunion. Now, look, ever since COVID hit, I've been longing for a reunion. Every week we get a little, little taste of it, right? We get to gather in this room, a limited degree. But you know that there's people you haven't seen since the beginning of this awful thing, Right? There's people that you care about, that you're concerned with, that you wonder, are they okay? Have they fallen off the cliff? Who knows where they're at? And you, like Paul, are wondering and praying and hoping for the day that we'll all be together. And listen, I'm hoping for the day when this room is packed full of familiar faces and new. Familiar faces to those who've been here forever and new faces for those of us who are new in the room. And all of us together saying, hey, we finally are united. This is what we've longed for. And here, here's the really good news. One day, there's going to be an ultimate reuniting everyone that we long to spend more time with, for all the conversations that lie incomplete because we got too tired, for all the places that we long to go with others, there's a new heaven and new earth that's going to be created by Christ and it will be eternal and there will never be an end to the joy and the reuniting of God's people. That's what we look forward to. That's what he's praying for in this. He prays not only for reuniting, but he prays that they would be full of love for one another increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Listen, the Father had poured out his love on the, on the Son and within the Trinity, and then he stamped that into creation, making it so that the best way that we could interact with one another would be defined by how God interacts with himself. And so for all of us that are being redeemed, we're getting to share in this treasure of love and the wealth that's been displayed through Jesus Christ on the cross. And then he prays the last thing, that you would be holy and blameless before the throne of glory. He's, again, he goes to this day in the future where he says, one day everyone's going to stand before the throne of God. And my hope for you there is that you'll faultless stand before the throne like we just sang about. Ultimately, the sanctifying worth, that has, it's going on right now. God's changing you. If you get in proximity with him, he's gonna rearrange your life and he's gonna rearrange your values and your treasures. But there's one day when it will be complete and you will stand before him faultless because of seeing him face to face. Right now from one degree to a glory, but one day we'll stand complete. And so what does this matter? I got a couple applications for us, okay? And then we're gonna have lunch. Number one, we all need an advocate like that. We need people who are concerning themselves with both the ways that we're tempted and afflicted and they're responding with care and with the truth of the gospel who would be relieved and prayerful if they could see us now walking with Jesus, just relieved that we're still standing in the faith. Trying to pursue him, trying to exalt him with our lives. You know that there's people that God's appointed in your life like this. Thank God for them. Now, here's the flip side of that God wants to express this kind of need through you. He wants to meet this kind of need through every believer that we would concern ourselves with one another, that would look around ourselves and not take it for granted that, look, Five years from now, we don't know where anyone's going to be in this room, and we will concern ourselves in prayer and in love and with advocating before the Father and, and wondering, have they been tempted? Are they afflicted? Where are they at? And so when somebody texts you and says, hey, listen, we had not seen you in a while, here's what I want you to know. Don't be offended. Receive it as God's care through them. We need people to advocate the gospel in our lives. When we say something that is not true, it does not reflect the gospel of Jesus, we need people to say, wait, 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 hold up a minute. <laughs> You're interpreting this whole affliction wrong. When somebody, if, if, if we were the kind of people who just would sprinkle the gospel into our conversations, when others are suffering and they say, listen, I don't know how God could do this, we could say, look, The only thing we deserve is God's wrath, and everything else is his mercy. And so we gladly receive whatever comes between this day and the day that we see him face to face, because some days it feels like he is detaching us from this world. And it is his kindness that would do so. It's not his anger, he's not cruel, he's not unkind. We need gospel advocates like that. And now, last point, I promise. Jesus is our advocate. There is not a person in this world who cares for you more tenderly, who sees you more intimately than Christ himself. There is not a person more long-suffering and more invested in your future than Christ himself. He is both our advocate and our judge, and he stands as a lawyer who pleads the case before us, who stands declaring God's mercy over us, In Isaiah, it says this. It's going to be on the screen. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. In other words, he longs to be with you. If Paul longed to be with this group of people, let me tell you something that eclipses Paul's desire to be with his people. Jesus Christ longs for you to be with him. In fact, he prayed for it. John 17, he made this prayer and it says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, he desires for you to see him, to witness his glory, to see what he's about, to receive him as Christ, our Savior and advocate and friend, as the provision for every mistake that you've made and everyone that you've not yet made, that he declares grace and mercy. He longs to be merciful to you. And so we come to him as an advocate for us. He's concerning. Listen, for all the ways that Satan could tempt us, he knows his devices, he knows his schemes, and he speaks a better word. And ultimately, Satan's, he's done. He's done. And one day, Satan will be ultimately comp- completely finished. Romans 16, 20 says this, the God of peace will soon, hear that word soon for your hearts, crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. There's a day coming where all of the lies of the deceiver, every way that he's telling you, you're done for and condemned and ashamed will be over. Every way that he's telling you to look at others and say, you can't trust him. Isolate yourself. Go away from them. All those schemes will be completely finished. And ultimately, for those of you who've stumbled and you're wondering if there's a place for you, you have an advocate with the Father. John, 1 John 2 one says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would come to rescue us. Thank you for this picture of affection that Paul has for the church, concerning himself with their affliction, their temptation. Concerning himself to respond and build them up and exhort them. I pray that we would be built up today in the gospel. That Jesus Christ, you would be worshiped today. Help us to adore you as we sing these songs. In Jesus' name, amen. stand up and sing together.